Hello and welcome back to the Changa Institute podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Willie T, who's not only a psilocybin facilitator that's gone through the Changa Institute school, he's also working out the legal complexities of growing psilocybin-containing mushrooms in the state of Oregon to be used in psilocybin sessions. So without further ado, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Changa Institute podcast with me, James Bunn. I have a slightly different turn of events today. So in the last couple of episodes, you've been hearing from um, psilocybin facilitators that have gone through the Changa school and sort of on the path of becoming well, or have become actually a facilitator themselves. And now we're going to delve a little bit more into the mycology angle today, because it's a vital part of where this medicine comes from. And to do that, I am speaking to a fabulous guy by the name of Willie T. Now, Willie, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience that are listening in today? Hey, yeah, my name is Willie T. I'm the owner of TripsOregon.com. I'm also the head of the Psilocybin Facilitators Association. And we've been in this for a couple of years now, working on genetics, and we're getting ready to open our manufacturing facility out here in Oregon. Fantastic. And, and yeah, so I guess in terms of genetics and production and things like that, it's, it's a term that we've become a little bit more au fait or used to in recent years in the cannabis space. It's been something that's been, you know, growing, pardon the pun, over the last few years. Now, I guess it's something that we, at least this community of people aren't as aware of happening in the psychedelic space, or at least I'm not personally. And and some people, I guess, out there will be thinking, you know, what's the importance of different species of mushrooms? You know, do they have different purposes? Are they for different people? Now, you're growing mushrooms at the moment. Could you kind of weigh in a little bit about sort of, you know, species differences? Like, why are we even interested in the first place about these different species? Definitely. Well, you know, first off, I always like to start off with just, you know, getting over the idea that mushrooms are, you know, people like kind of associate with cannabis and growing cannabis. It's a whole different species. Like it's a whole different plant, you know, fungus, fungi, they're, you know, they don't grow like you put a plant, a seed in the soil and it grows. There's a whole different process to the thing. And the difference between species is like for Oregon, only P. cubensis can be grown according to the rules at first. But it makes sense because through our studies, we've discovered there's a lot of other psychedelic, you know, psilocybin-containing mushrooms like cyanescence, azorescence, and some of these are great growing mushrooms, but they do require like different techniques to grow with wood and stuff like that, and they're a little bit harder to grow indoors. Through my journey, I slowly discovered like the amanita, that's not a psilocybin-containing mushroom, but you can't really grow that in a lab setting. We discovered that the beautiful thing about mushrooms is they communicate with uh, other plants and through root systems. And the mushroom, like the amanita, you can grow it, you know, as a mycelium. And mycelium is, you know, basically the first building blocks. It's like the roots of the mushroom. But you can't really ever get it to fruit without its coexistence with a dying tree, which is so unique and so beautiful that, you know, these species of mushrooms could have such a communication with nature and be such an intricate part of nature and the life cycles. They live with each other. They communicate with each other. I mean, I hate to say it, I, I don't think we even do that. So, 
No, definitely. And I, I think you've you very aptly answered my question there. And I, I think I would be really kicking myself if I didn't get this opportunity. It wasn't on my schedule of things to talk to you about, but we're here anyway. I want to talk to you about Amanita again. And more frequently, I'm seeing in a Canadian marketplace, these Amanita gummies sold as, you know, legal. I'm putting in inverted commas here. I'm not too sure about how it stands, really. I'm sorry, that's the industry I come from. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Could, could you tell us a bit about those gummies? Well, I got to say, it was really interesting being down at the trade show last uh, week, Champs Trade Show. You know, I started to kind of lose a little bit with everybody that would be like, oh, we have one of the manufacturing licenses in Oregon. I'm like, well, I know all three manufacturing licenses, so which one are you, buddy? Uh, 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 that's, uh, uh, my guy, my, my friend in Portland's handling that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know... As you grow older, you start to discover this. A lot of people are in it just to make money. And right now, you know, taking a CBD product or a Delta 9 product, sprinkling a little bit of lion's mane in there, or doing an Amanita uh, mushroom and then selling it as a psychedelic is a very popular thing right now. It's growing. You know, there's only two or three trade shows. There's only one booth. The slash trade show, half the show was booths of various mushroom gummies i mean it was ridiculous the models were walking around handing us gummies at our booth and we're selling mushroom grow supplies and stuff like that and so it's huge it's growing a lot bigger and see in the beginning i was very much against amanita because you know a lot of mycologists like you know paul you know they're kind of against amanita because it doesn't it doesn't act on the same receptors and it doesn't act like a psychedelic I'm not a scientist, so do please forgive me if I say the wrong words. I think it's neurotropic or something like that. I might have that word wrong, so I do want to just point that out. But uh, basically, Amanita is just being pitched the wrong way. They're pitching it like it's psychedelic because there's all this movement for psychedelics. So they're trying to call it the new microdose. They're trying to call it this. They're putting it in bright colored packaging. They're trying to get it out as fast as they can, make as much money as they can before the window closes. And it's just being pitched wrong. You know, I was very much against it until I met a lot of like real Amanita people. And I slowly learned that Amanita is just, you know, it's more of like the drunken mushroom. It's a mushroom to help you go to sleep. You know, it does have at higher doses, it does have the ability to cause like repetitive motions and repetitive actions. Doesn't really open up any psychedelic experience, but it does have a potential if you have too high of a dose to cause possible comas or very long, long sleeps. And so, you know, pitching it as a psychedelic to make money, you know, is a little bit wrong to me. But, you know, who am I to say what people could do? But that's just what it is. So I guess I'm the, I guess I was the anti-Amanita guy for a minute, but I'm not no more because I do feel it has, it has its value when it's pitched right. If you pitch it like a nighttime drink, you know, the drunken mushroom, that's its pitch. But as a psychedelic, it definitely is not. Some of the best psychedelics in the world, of course, are your Cubenzas, the most powerful psychedelics in the world as a, as a resins. You know, these those grow out here naturally on the Oregon coast, and that's the most potent psilocybin psychedelic mushroom. And that's the difference between, like, psychedelic. You know, psychedelic is something that's going to kind of open your mind up, create those uh, receptors that helps your brain just, you know, see different pathways. You know, Robin Carhart Harris talks about that so much. and 
that's where the psychedelic benefit comes into play, especially for facilitators, because you're able to view things from a different perspective. You're able to see situations, you know, traumas in your life from a different lens, a different angle, maybe have empathy for the people around you. So, yeah, that was a fun experience. I uh, made sure to have, uh, you know, you always got to have one night of relaxation down there. And we definitely had one night of relaxation. It was definitely <laughs> an eye opener for me. No, definitely. I think you, you say it in the right way. It's, it's never anything to do with the, the mushrooms fault. It's how people are using it and, and abusing it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it, that was just a little side tangent that I was interested in. But one thing I do want to draw us back to is two things, well, two things you mentioned already. The first one is about the fact that cubensis mushrooms are the ones being heralded by the state of Oregon as the ones you can grow. And you also mentioned they are, in some sense, the best. And I mean, I'm kind of curious about, well, best in terms of why do you think the state went for that one, do you think? So that one, uh, this is kind of fun because that one is like the one. And we were discussing this the other day. You know, when I was younger, there was, you know, we only knew of one mushroom that got you messed up. Well, two mushrooms, you know, the meanies, the blue meanies off of shit patties, you know, off of cow dung. And you'd have to eat big handfuls and you'd hope you uh, dried them out enough so you don't get worms. And then there was the... The guy who had the Liberty Caps, you know, and we've gone to discover that, you know, the Liberty Caps is a wide range of mushrooms. You know, they consist of Golden Teachers, Tasmanians, Burmas, uh, BSPKs, you know, various other strains of things. The Pecumbensis has expanded into over 200 cultivars now. And generally, anybody in the industry right now is roughly messing with about 40 or so and they wide they're a wide range and they're just a genetic find too like i mean for instance we have a genetic that we love and what it was was a jedi mindfuck which is the golden teacher looking mushroom and it's you know a brown topped mushroom we have one growing and one of my first picks I seen a little white one in there and I'm thinking to myself, it's kind of like seeds. Like how did one of the little spores get in here? It's so confusing. And my mycologist that was teaching me, he was like, oh, wait, no, that's that's a genetic. And so we pulled that. We kept making tub after tub and then tubs would be like split. You know, it'd be like some of it would be brown, some would be white. And then we'd pull those and pull those and pull those. And we kept, you know, refreshing it, refreshing it, doing it in them in our, uh, you know, clearing them out in our uh petri dishes as well and eventually we were able to isolate that specific genetic and get that genetic down to just growing the white mushroom there and not to be confused with the leucistic jedi we held two up and they're very 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 you know they're not similar in appearance at all they're both white but the one we're growing had a darker veil it had a little bit lighter top to it as well yeah, and then eventually, you you know, there's a new cultivar on the market. You know, we call it the Stormtrooper. So, you know, White Jedi. Yeah, yep, that makes sense. I get the connection. <laughs> yeah, uh, gotta be. And uh, it's really nice, too, because we just got this genetic out, and I got to see somebody at the show who ran up on me and was like, dude, that play you gave me was the best play. They're growing so great. <laughs> like, so, you know, now the genetics, you know, moving through the whole, you know, community. Hmm. Just a quick question on genetics, because again, I'm, you're speaking to someone here that I feel like I don't, 
and don't know as I definitely don't know as much as you, but I got a question about the genetics, and that's around genetic breeding of mushrooms. How much is, is this a quite new area of science for for humankind, or is this something that we have been doing for years? Or, or yeah, the whole. I mean, you know, people have been doing it for years. I would say, you know, like people growing in labs have been going on for 30, 40 years. But dude, it's a new it's a new science every day. There's so many different techs. No tech is 100% correct. You know, everybody does kind of what they need to do. And it's all a new, you know, it's all new techniques. It's all new, new ways. You know, everybody's kind of just figuring out how to get this going. Everybody's got their idea of what works the best, what doesn't work the best. You know, daily there's conversations of, you know, is this better? Does it need this? Does it need that? Why does it need this? Why does it need that? Don't need this. Don't need that. I mean, you could any day at any time you could make a post in one of the groups and get an argument between my colleges deciding you know whether this is better than that so. I, i've seen some of those arguments and they can yeah be, yeah yeah for a loving community can be pretty engaged let's say <laughs> yes yes and, uh, there's definitely a lot of the community that feels their way is the only way mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a very opening like when we developed our technique we took you know we, t- we were following four or five of the you know top people in the industry, and we took a little piece from each one of them to develop our technique and what we do, and how our flow works. So, no, that's that's really cool, and, and building on the shoulders of giants in a, in a sense, and, and also pioneering this way forward. If it's an it's an unknown area, I mean, you know, cannabis genetics wasn't particularly well known, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Look at it now. And cannabis genetics too, you know. You know, it's the same thing. Like mushrooms, you know, they're starting to grow. In the beginning, there was only three kinds of weed, brick weed, good weed, and the good shit, you know. So now, like, the same thing's happening with, you know, mushrooms. You know, you're getting different cultivars that produce higher psilocybin contents. And the one thing I I love about this that I think is a little bit better than the cannabis space is that, you know, there's definitely more of a community feel, even from the guys that are like, my way is the right way and the only way, they're still willing to share. And I think that's a big important factor to this being what it is, is we're willing to share. You know, when I made that cultivar, did I keep it to myself and say, I'm the only one with stormtroopers? No, my goal was to get it to as many people as possible. So it becomes, you know, something everybody can experience. And I think that is one thing that that this space does have is, is definitely a solid sense of community. People who, you know, have enjoyed enjoyed psilocybin mushrooms tend to be a little bit more open to sharing and empathetic to one another. No, yeah, definitely. I, I you know, worked in both myself, cannabis and psychedelics, and it has been a little bit of a breath of fresh air, let's say, to, to move from one to the other. I guess because what I'm, I'm curious to do here is with you guys are really interested in mycology and I wanted to tie a little bit back to Oregon again. So pulling it back to the, the other question about, you know, what happened at the health authority of Oregon to make them decide that psilocybin cubensis was the one they were going to go with? Was there like consultations that went on? Were you involved? I mean, yeah. How, how did that turn out? There was. So I love those meetings. I uh, One of my partners, he had to cover some of the events and he was like, it's taking forever to download. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a four hour conversation and you're probably going to write down two lines that mean anything. But I need you to write down those two lines and tell me what that conversation was about during that meeting. But they would have consultations and meetings. And I think the Cubensis was just the you know, to the state, it was a the safest because all the other species. So they, the state made two rules. 
One rule was not growing on manure, which was, you know, anybody in the space was like, whoa, because everybody grew on manure. But of course, everybody had to, you know, adjust and make, make their new process. So that was one of the things. Actually, you know, I love to tell this. When I was growing up, there was always two things true about mushrooms to me. And that was that mushrooms taste like shit. I hope this is a non-edited podcast. (laughs) And you are going to get couch locked. Like I would be the, you know, I'm a big guy and I'd be the guy stuck on the ground, spinning in circles, just laughing, right? Like just stuck on the ground, right? And I thought that was a constant with mushrooms. No matter what you're doing, that was a constant. Well, little did I know after growing our own mushrooms, they don't taste like shit when you don't grow them on shit. (laughs) And there's something called um, wood lover's paralysis. And if you grow on wood, there's a chance that you'll get this chemical that just kind of incapacitates your body during the experience. So that was a thing that the state recognized and pushed. So I think when they made their decision on only doing PQBenzas, it was a decision based on that because cyanescence, you know, azorescence generally grows on wood. And most of the other, you know, psychedelic mushrooms grow on woods. PQBenzas is the only one that's pretty versatile and can grow on coca core, vermiculite, and gypsum. So CVG is what we call that. We have a specially formulated CVG because we're out here on the coast. So we actually have some shell in there too, which provides great calcium for the mushrooms, gives it a nice body, doesn't make them as hollow. You know, just like it helps our bones, it helps mushrooms' bones, which is funny because, you know, we're actually more genetically related to mushrooms than we are plants. So, so I take that the, the takeaway from this is that really the government were looking at versatility. So is it something that can be grown outside of these spaces, but also sort of commonality? Does the space see this as a very well-known, well-established space, which, which in, a, in a sense is really good to know that, that those local authorities are listening to the people that are on the ground here working like yourselves. And Oregon is always a little bit of an interesting case study, right, in the, in the U.S., it's kind of curious about why that is why that state is the one that usually is the trailblazer in these fields. Do, do you have a sense of why Oregon is sometimes the one to take this first step there? <laughs> oh man, I didn't know we were going to go that direction on the podcast. <laughs> Just by our comparison of our neighbors, Oregon is, you know, people out here are a little bit more free with their ideas. And I think too, with Oregon, I always have this conversation because I fought for legalization of cannabis and we were fighting for legalization cannabis in idaho too as well and we discovered that passing grassroots movements in idaho was next to impossible they had just strict rules on how you can gather signatures how you can petition your government and everything like that and in doing so they have way way fewer like grassroots movements And if you look at their history, their history is pretty much any grassroots movement, quote unquote, let's throw those quotes up very, very big, was usually done by some sort of pact that came from like, you know, a casino or, you know, grocery store owners or something like that looking to sell liquor to everybody. Right. And Oregon's not like that. Like Oregon, you know, pound for pound had way more grassroots movements petition movement, state petitions, you know, and that's how this started. Tom Eckhart and his wife, they both pushed this forward 
And, you know, the grassroots movement was able to gain enough traction to get on the ballot. And then it became a ballot measure and the people got to vote. And I think that's why I think here, you know, people use their First Amendment right to petition. They use the First Amendment right to protest and they do it. And that's why I think Oregon pushes it through a lot better because, you know, the people do have a voice here, which is why I love this state. No, that's great. And I mean, Oregon is the first state to have done this, but then you're also part of it, to my knowledge as well, one of the first cohorts to, that has been taught by the Changer Institute to deliver um, the psilocybin facilitation. We are Changa number one. Exactly, exactly. And this is why I found it really interesting to interview, and, and this is going to be part of a series of interviews, which I assume everyone listening knows at this point, of those first people to go through, because this is really trailblazing stuff. Now, I guess my question to you is a little bit around being one of these first people that is realistically qualified in the in the US to deliver this type of service. How do you think this will start to evolve from now? I mean, from what you were taught to how it might be taught in a year from now, do you think that it's going to be very much the same? Or do you think there are lessons to be learned from those first sort of cohorts people that go through? Oh, I can already tell you there's already lessons needing learning. And you know, we are already trailblazing this, you know, and when you're making the trail, you know, sometimes, you know, you might push through a section of trail and then come up to a, you know, a giant cliff and have to backtrack a little bit and go back around a different way. And that was a, that was something that was funny. I didn't even really consider the national level until we were at MAPS in Denver and I was talking with the doctor and she was interviewing me and talking with me and she says, oh, so you're, you know, you're, you're the third to graduate in the, in Oregon. Well, doesn't that make you in the nation? And I'm like, it does. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very unique position to be in, Willie, really. I mean, you know, we look at you from the UK, which is where I'm calling you from today, as like this kind of like, oh, wow. Like, you know, not only is it that you're realistically some of the first to be able to do this in in the world, in a sense, in the last 50 years or so, you know, let's, let's just put it within that bracket. So there's two, there's two parts. I want to finish answering your question because I think there is, because like in my studies already and our conversations already, we've already started to run across things that aren't being discussed that we haven't quite learned yet, you know, that I think will eventually get added to the curriculum, you know, like for instance, neuropathy, you know, no one had a clue. But we're starting to, we, we quickly discovered that like patients who have neuropathy issues, they haven't felt their feet or anything like that for years. We found out, you know, psychedelics is being studied, you know, psilocybin psychedelics is being studied for a possible cure for neuropathy. So, you know, when it comes to your patient, like all of a sudden they're feeling their feet, they ain't felt in years, you know, that could be an issue. So, you know, there's a lot of like curvatures to learning this. And I think, too, another thing that gets overlooked in our industry here is, you know, yeah, Oregon did design this great clinical, you know, MAPS is talking about all this great clinical. There's so much great clinical stuff. But Oregon also designed it for there is a path for entertainment as well. You know, this can be a recreational thing that can be way better than going out and getting shit-faced drunk with your friends and smoking too many cigarettes, you know? I mean, how many cigarettes and how many how much alcohol does it take to kill you? You know, there's data on that. Uh, mushrooms can't kill you, you know? There's no toxicity there. Well, but just some mushrooms can definitely kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about 
two Benza's mushrooms growing through this cer- this center. Yeah, you're, you're correct. very correct. Do not go out to. Your, <laughs> I don't want to get sued right yeah, now. That's Just what I'm thinking. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, slow down, slow down. Even the amanita is in is in the family of some of the deadliest mushrooms. If you pick the wrong one, that's the last amanita you'll pick. But yeah, no. Uh, you know, the psilocybin cubensis is not toxic, and so there's a lot of potential there. So I think as, you know, more states open up, especially like Colorado snacks, and Colorado always does everything big. I fought for legalization in Washington and then moved to Colorado because Colorado was really taking it to the top. And they're probably about two years out for their program, but uh, I think there's a lot of space to learn in that area. And I think, too, one of our friends, and I think you did an interview with her, Jeanette, you know, she points out the fact that a lot of the studies and a lot of the space that has been created by MAPS, you know, is very solid and very rigid. It's like this room, this shape, that thing, this is exactly how. And I think that everybody's experience is different and everybody, you know, everybody getting to their experience on different pathways is important. I don't think there's, you know, one solid solution for doing this. And I think that over the course of the next few years, people seeing this, it's going to, of course, evolve, create new spaces and create new ideas. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. It already is, but I'm really excited to see where it goes as well here, William. I guess I actually did want to, I did want to pick up on a little other point there as well, because I think this isn't a conversation I can't usually have. So I'm going to take this opportunity to have it. Yes. Which is about, so the world that I'm from, which I don't think the audience is all that interested in, but I'll tell it nonetheless, is I'm from a very clinical space, you know, it's clinical trials. I do a lot with real world evidence gathering in Canada. Everything is very much done through universities, hospitals, that sort of thing. It's it's quite dry, let's say, in terms of content. And a word that we would never be able to even speak in that space is about entertainment in the psychedelic realm. And, and the idea that these can be used for, again, the word recreation is sometimes frowned upon or the word, you know, wellness is probably the closest you'd get to it in that space. Yeah. Well, I think when you use the word recreation, a lot of people get the idea that it's going to be abused. And yes, I, exactly. You know, that's, that's an idea that sometimes just needs to be overlooked because like for me, I've been doing psychedelics for, you know, 20 years and I've gone from being a homeless bum kid to being somebody respected in my industry, somebody who's pushed through legalization. And it was due to, you know, these recreational psychedelic experiences, because in these recreational psychedelic experiences, you would always have, you know, I would always end up coming out with some sort of theme, something that I overcame. For instance, like just this last time in Vegas, I went in and, you know, set some intentions. I think actually I'm going to point this out. This is a fun thing. I love setting attentions for a psychedelic experience because I've discovered that most of the time when somebody sets an intention, something they want to face, something they want to address, including myself here, that once you start the psychedelic experience, you never ever actually get to the intention because you end up discovering what's blocking the intention before you ever get to the intention. So by the time you're like, oh, do you want to read the intention? Like, it doesn't even matter. I already know what's blocking it. And that's, that's an amazing thing. Like for me, I'll just give you give you just a quick rundown of my last psychedelic experience. It started off as an entertaining night. We went to the Imaginarium and explored all this blue lights and dragons and all kinds of stuff. It was really great because it, 
it was uh they had this little dragon i was like oh yeah i'm the king of the dragon now this little girl is like i challenge you i'm like oh you win she got up there it was so fun and then we got back to our to our space and i was getting ready to go bed just clicked on some fractals and was just going to kind of doze off but a friend of mine had given me this saying right he had said the the Shakespearean, a kingdom for a horse, a kingdom for a horse, a kingdom for a horse. And I didn't know the phrase. I didn't know the Shakespearean play. So, of course, you know, I started researching it. And through my research and through the fractals, I ended up having a full-blown experience of my past, my youth, remembering my father. My father left when I was eight because he was on run from the police. He was a criminal. And I'll never forget, you know, I have my little Ninja Turtle back here because, you know, it was pretty much like, hey, you want to move up north where we can live healthier lives because uh, you get sick here living in the south because you're allergic to mold. And mind you, I'm allergic to mold in the mycology space. Yeah, get that. So I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And we took off and I left my uh, box of Ninja Turtles. And, you know, my whole life, I was a little over upset with that because that was the end of it for me. That, you know, after that, eight, eight, he was gone. I was taking care of my brothers and sisters. I was homeless by 14. You know, that was the end of it for me. I had no childhood after that. Right. So I've always kind of had a little bit of, a, of an issue with that and not really knowing I had an issue of that. And through my psychedelic experience, I was able to have empathy for my father and to realize what it was that he lost at that moment. That, that stupid box of Ninja Turtles, you know, may have been the end of my childhood. But for him, that was the end of him being a father because he wanted to provide me with everything he could. And he just made bad choices to try to do that. And it ended up causing him everything. And through that understanding and through that empathy that I experienced, I was able to come, you know, get out of, you know, certain things that I'm feeling, certain bandments I've been dealing with. Came home and bought my kid all the Ninja Turtles in the world. It was great. He's been having fun with them. Oh, I love that. That's very wholesome. <laughs> but it's those small experiences, yeah. you know? And those small experiences sometimes just pop up after an entertaining night. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes when you, when you just go in and you're like, I'm trying to fix this, I'm trying to work on this, mm. you kind of overlook it, you kind of overmiss the goal. And it can be something so small that is causing so much more, you know, problems. And I think that's where the beauty comes with the entertainment. And that's why, like, for me, you know, I want to create a space that's kind of a funnel that, you know, people are going to come to that's not saying I'm ready to get better. I'm ready to get mentally health. They're coming to us saying, yeah, I'm looking for a fun night. I don't know why, but I don't feel very happy in my life right now. I just want entertainment. I go out and get drunk every night, but it don't do nothing for me. So let's try this. And before they know it, they're having those experiences. And then we have the ability to say, hey, man, welcome. You know, now we have, now you can dive in interpersonally. Now you can go into a space where you need to heal yourself. And I think that's going to help so many people who don't really even know they need help yet. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel the importance of the you know, recreational, the entertainment side of this. And I don't think it should get overlooked. And I think when they created the space, they meant the space to have that, to be seen from a clinical side, to have a clinical side, but to still have an opening for people who don't quite know that they need clinical help. Yep. 
So having some sort of clinical oversight of safety and making sure that, you know, everyone there is being safe in a clinical sense, but also it's not X treats Y and you have to do that in that, that container or that vessel. And, and that's why the facilitators are so important because that's what we are. We are that boundary. And no matter how, if you're coming in for entertainment, you still have a facilitator who walks you through everything, who's there for that whole experience. And that's, that's where a lot of the safety comes in. Yeah, and, and, and obviously part of the training as well. And, you know, tying this in back to Changa in the, in the first instance is that I hope that what, and again, I haven't actually gone through the training myself. I'm just here to interview those that have, is that part of that setup is t- teaching the future generation of these facilitators to be able to make sure that person is able to operate within a safe vessel, but also allowing that person to not be too strictly guided. You know, it's not like you're, you're doing this in order to achieve X. It's more of you're going to do this and we're going to be there for you for that time. Well, I like to always tell clients too, it's like, you know, I love to tell you that you're going to come and take this little beautiful pill and it's going to solve all your problems. But that's just not the reality, right? You know, our bodies, if we were to get in a car wreck and our arm was cut, you know, and we were bleeding, we would go to a doctor, right? The doctor, he don't heal us. What the doctor does is he makes sure to provide the space that our body can heal it. You know, he'll clean up the wound, he'll sew it together, he'll make sure it don't get affected, but it's our own bodies that heal ourselves. And our minds are the same way. Our own minds heal ourselves. And so that's what we're trained to do. And furthermore, that was something else too. Like, you know, back in the day, everything was recreational. You know, you'd eat your mushrooms, go to the beach or whatever. And somebody, of course, would have a bad trip. And then the goal during their bad trip, you know, before training was to be like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Come on, just, you know, try to comfort them and make them get out of their bad trip. And I think, too, with some of our training, we've been trained to actually allow them to explore that bad trip and to be able to hold the space. As a salesman, that was a hard area for me to train myself into because I'm a very you know, outspoken, you ain't walking past my booth without getting told, hi, I got all the information for you to just being somber and just being like, I'm here for you and letting them explore that space, but knowing when to get them out of it. And I think in doing that, it's really helped a lot of people so far. I mean, the industry is still young. We'll see in the long term, really touch the things that have hurt them without them running away from it so instantly. And through that, through the neural pathways, they're able to see it from a different perspective because the thing about neural pathways and, you know, Robin Carr Harris touches on this one too, is, you know, we get stuck in our default mode networks and that's what tells us how to drive a car without thinking about it. But we forget that when we do that and we do get stuck in our default mode networks, that that also gauges how we see everything. It gauges how we interact to, you know, things that have happened to us or happening to us, you know, and in those neural pathways, you get stuck doing the same pattern no matter what. And so through, you know, the psychedelic experience and opening up new ways, if you're able to practice new ways of seeing that, then you're able to repeat that in the future when different events pop up. So instead of, you know, falling back into your basic neural pathways of shutting down or running away or whatever, you're able to, you know, face it or address it or see it in a different light. Once you kind of start working those paths, you know, just like the path in the jungle there we were talking about. 
No, no, no. I love it. I love it. I think this is all important stuff. This whole podcast was not necessarily what I was intending, but I'm really enjoying it nonetheless. Yeah, we were going to talk about mycology, man. I'm yeah, well, <laughs> I definitely could touch the uh, how to grow some mushrooms too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, not only that, you. I mean, so um, I'm going to speak a little bit about the the two offerings I think that I've seen from you that is particularly interesting. And one of them is that mushroom grow course. Can you can you explain a little bit about your work in the sort of the teaching others how to grow? Definitely, yeah. You know, and we we do a full line of grow kits for like oyster mushrooms and lion's mane because we also sell a line of supplement mushroom blends, which is a blend of five different mushrooms, very legal mushrooms like lion's mane, changa, relishi, cordyceps, turkey tail. And all these mushrooms have great benefits for, you know, humans. So home kits have become more and more important. So what we have is home kits that you can grow. Now, the best way to grow is to grow from an agar dish and then move it into like a grain. And what you're doing is basically you're providing the perfect space for mushrooms to grow. Now, some kits, you can just go straight into the grains. What you'll do is you'll get like a liquid culture. A liquid culture is a... So when you grow mushrooms on agar, it's really beautiful. You know, it starts off as one space and it extends out these arms reaching for nutrients and it fills in the space as it goes. Liquid culture is the same thing, but in a liquid form. So it's more like a 3D space. And so this mycelium will grow in a liquid culture. You can then take this as a syringe and insert it right into a grain bag, an all-in-one grain bag or your own grain bags. And the grain is the nutrients that the mushrooms love to eat. It's just like us. It loves oatmeal, which is surprisingly, <laughs> yeah, no, we eat, we eat horse oats at the lab. I mean, it's the only way to test that if the, the grain has the perfect moisture is to actually, you know, eat a piece of horse oats and make sure that the moisture is perfect. Because if it's perfect for us, it's perfect for them because you got to get it. Hey, I'm glad to see they're tried and tested, you know, and not tested on animals, tested on, on yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, tested. We tested on us, uh, you know, so. but it's, it's surprisingly good. But you want to get it just perfect because that perfect moisture makes it so the mushroom eats those grains. It grows. It eventually fulfills the whole bag. You want to give it a couple stirs in between. And then once it's filling the whole bag, then you're going to introduce it to your tub or you're going to open it up, let it grow. It depends on whatever process you're wanting. They're known as Martha tents when you kind of open them up. I prefer tubs personally. I think tubs are great because tubs are very controlled environments. If one environment goes bad, which happens pretty often, if you ever meet a mycologist that says they have no contamination, they're lying to you. They're not a mycologist. You know, your goal is to get less than 5%. But you're always, you know, you're creating a, a structure, you're creating an environment that's perfect for mold because, you know, now it just depends on which mold's going to grow. Your, you know, mycelium mushroom mold or your, you know, trike, which is the green mold everyone finds in their glass that they don't want to see or on their plate, you know. There's also other molds like cobweb mold, gray mold, black molds, all that stuff. But yeah, you want to get that going. Once you got that going, you want to grow in a tub because a tub, you know, it's all contained. If you get one tub that's bad, it's easy to remove that one tub, wipe down everything. If you lose one thing in your Martha tent, you're probably going to lose the whole Martha tent. Because if you could see the mold growing, you're all, it's already too late. It's already too late. 
If you can see a colony, it's not like, ooh, hey, there's a mold spore. It's like, oh, hey, there's a metropolis of mold right now. As a full city of little mold trucks that are flying little mold spores to all your other mushrooms so that they could start eating. One of the things I want to point out that's beautiful is when you grow in a petri dish, Sometimes you're doing genetics to pull out a genetic, to clean up a genetic, right? And so you'll get a Petri dish that ends up having a trike and a mushroom mold. And if they grow at opposite ends, it, it's so beautiful. And I, I know I'm supposed to throw them away, but sometimes I set them in a little closet just so I can watch them. Because it's like a war. They'll start growing and they'll see each other. And they'll be in a round circle growing each until they see each other. And then when they see each other, they start lining up like our troops back in the uh, Revolutionary War. And they start lining up these little lines and they'll just keep growing until eventually the lines see each other and they touch. And then eventually one will outgrow the other. Hopefully it's the mushroom, which then you want to try to take the genetic because then it's a genetic that could beat the mold, which is great. Yeah, that's super strong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most of the times it's the mold that wins, sadly. But I know who I put my money on, but you know, I think I'm <laughs> But it's just, it's like, I don't know. It's so entertaining to watch. No, definitely. That's, that's really cool. I, I had literally no idea. Yeah. I guess that, so that's one, that's one element which you guys do. And I'm, I'm aware that uh, trips specifically have really amazing sort of grow operation. I've seen sort of like the stuff you put online, some of the videos you've got and things like that. And it all looks fantastic, but I'm also curious and I'm also aware this is probably going to have to round up today. Can you tell us a bit more about what trips is doing to as now that you've got your license as a facilitator? Mm hmm. So yeah, we're working on, we have our facility. We're waiting for, we're still kind of waiting for a little bit of a last approval here, but uh, yeah, we're getting ready to open up our facility and we're going to have more of an entertaining side to us as well as the interpersonal. We split it down the middle and yeah, we're getting ready for that. But I was, I was getting ready to tell you all about the last step on growing the mushroom. Oh, sorry. I'm one step behind. Sorry. Carry on, carry on, carry on. Yeah, you will say bye. So once you got your grain bag and your grain bag's completely inoculated, that's what they call it when it's all the mycelium, which is white and real beautiful, has filled up the grain bag. You then break that bag up, put it in your tub, and you layer, lay out what's called the casing layer. That's where you would lay out your CVG, or if you were growing with other substrates, that's where you do your substrate. And what the substrate does is the substrate kind of cuts off oxygen. And when that happens, the mushroom says, oh, my gosh, it's time to bear fruit. So it bears fruit. It produces its uh, its organs. And uh, that's what we grow. And that's what everybody enjoys is that mushroom that grows before it pops all the spores out. And that's the end product, I guess. When that's you know, the end product think of, of a mushroom product. That's exactly what they're seeing, the fruits yeah. and bodies. And it's super delicate. Like, it is like. Like most people are like, oh, it's growing. You can't come back and check. You got to check it like every six hours because once they start popping, they go so fast and they'll drop their spores. And if they drop their spores on all the other mushrooms, they turn out black and ugly looking. Mm. They're still okay, but they have all these spores all of them. So you got to be really like on top of when to pick your mushrooms. Plus, if you let them grow too long and they drop all their spores for some of the, the white genetics that don't leave spores, then you'll leave. You'll get like lighter mushrooms. They won't have as much body to them. And did you know that when you dry mushrooms out, you lose roughly 92% of its weight? I have heard. I have heard. And I mean, you know, I've seen the product from before and, and after. And it's, it's really shocking in terms of the size difference of how much water weight they lose there. Yeah. 
And yeah, I'm, I'm amazed about it. We got these now new breed of mushroom connoisseurs that are working on this in order to make sure that people aren't getting a, a slight spore on their mushroom compared to how it was growing off trees and, and cow dung and things like that. It's really quite a step up, <laughs> let's say. Yeah, really. Yeah, it's too, you know, like I always considered the, the vermiculite that would come on the mushrooms as part of the experience, but, you know, not no more. No, no, no. Now that you've seen the other side, you're like, well, I can only have the best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where that, you know, that's where the I think a lot of the potential in the industry is. And that's why, you know, we we pulled out on our manufacturing facility for a moment because when the rules got passed, uh, they kind of slid in this on the last minute that the facilities that produce these OHA approved OPS approved mushrooms they cannot produce any other products. So we will not be able to produce substrate bags or grain bags and then sell them anywhere else. We couldn't sell them on Amazon. We can't sell them that. We couldn't produce our mushroom coffees that we're producing. So unfortunately, we had to make the decision on which way to go. And we went with that way, the you know legal side of the industry there. I mean, federally legal, that's what we'll call it. The federally legal side of the industry so that we could you know produce these because now we could sell our grain bags to ourselves so we could produce them all in our other facility but what we want to do with our oha approved facility is no one is doing this yet out of all the manufacturers you can only get raw mushrooms in this this market currently and we are preparing ourselves and prepping ourselves to actually having the kitchen and the ability to produce mushroom gummies mushroom chocolates mushroom capsules mushroom drinks no roots of administration, really, and, and mixing up as much as possible for the consumer choice, right? Yeah, and giving a space for the growers to be able to provide, you know, they can get their products made, we can make them whatever they want. They want gummies made, chocolates made, anything they need made, we can make it. That's our goal with our facility at TRIPS. And that's our long-term goal with that. So, I love the goal, I love the goal. So just on a, on a last note then, if there's a junior Oregonian mycologist listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I really am interested to get more involved in the space or I would love to do exactly what Willie's doing, what, what's your piece of advice for them? What should they do? Definitely. So, you know, obviously check out, you know, Oregon's website first, make sure prepare yourself with all the rules. You know, there are rules that are set to, you know, limits that you can grow you know, amounts you could grow, testing, you know, what you can use. So definitely prepare yourself, get ready for that because the tech you have, you know, it might not be an acceptable tech. So definitely need to, you know, that's where I say start first. And then the second is, you know, work on your genetics. And that's what we've been working on solely is just our genetics and making sure that you have strong genetic lines before you really jump into this because what you don't want to do is you don't want to spend a bunch of money and then spend months trying to get your genetics right and your techniques right you want to you know get in get open get the doors open and get get to producing because of course the state's going to want some tax money and that's you know that's the whole project here you know so you want to make sure that that's happening and you want to definitely get a you know don't get stuck in your own ways you know join shroomery's shroomery is a good group they got a good reddit group they got a good facebook group 
I don't think it's called shrooming on Facebook no more. It's called Meta Engineers decided this name of this group was not proper. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll, we'll make sure to link to them in the show notes. So for anyone that's stuck <laughs> in, we'll, we'll put a link there so that you don't get lost. Yeah. And just reach out to us. I mean, we, you know, we're doing a lot of education stuff. Clearmagic.com should be up and running soon. And that's where you can learn how to grow oyster mushrooms, limeanes. You know, a lot of those mushrooms are similar to, you know, other mushrooms as well. So definitely not encouraging anybody to grow any illegal mushrooms. So don't do that. You know, instead, get your petitions together, go to your state, figure out how many signatures you need, and then start gathering some signatures, petition your government, get it on the ballot, and get it passed in your state. That's the goal. I love it. A call to action. Well, thank you very much today, Willie, and uh, thanks for your time. And I'll make sure obviously on the show notes as well that everyone can learn about trips and the work you've been doing. And uh, yeah, thank you for just taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. And remember, Changa number one, you want to go to the best school. They're the best school. I'm telling you the diversity, the education. I mean, amazing school. So if you guys need to make sure to check out their website, you've probably seen it through this website, but it's definitely worth going yeah, I got chosen for a couple and Chango was my pick and I'm so proud. I, I'm so glad I did, especially after hearing some of the other schools and what their requirements were. And it's like, nah, Chango's really putting out quality people. So if you want to be a quality facilitator, then Chango's the way to go. Nice one. All right, words of wisdom. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening and I'll see you next time. Cheers. If you are interested in becoming a psilocybin facilitator yourself, then please check out the website at www.changerinstitute.com.